0: Hey, everyone. It's me, Morgan. I wanted to introduce you to our new sponsor, Bookshelf Plus. If you're like me, you like to listen to your podcast in your car. Podcasts are perfect for my morning commute. But what do you do when you have a road trip and you need something a little bit longer to listen to? Well, with Bookshelf Plus, you have access to every audiobook Deseret Book has ever released. So regardless of what you're in the mood for, buckle up and let Bookshelf Plus keep you company on the open road. You can try Bookshelf Plus for 30 days free right now by visiting deseretbook.com slash all in. Again, that's desertbookcom slash all in. Happy trails, y'all. In a 2016 interview with me for the Deseret News, Rob Gardner said that while writing his Easter oratorio, Lamb of God, he found himself asking questions like, What was it like to be in this moment and not know that Christ was going to be resurrected on Sunday? Why did Peter deny Him in the first place? What was his emotion afterward? What were his thoughts? In honor of Easter, we recently sat down with Rob to talk about trying to see the Easter story through the eyes of those who knew Christ personally. Rob Gardner is a composer, producer, and conductor who you might best recognize as the composer of the sacred music oratorios Joseph Smith the Prophet and Lamb of God. He also arranged the version of Savior Redeemer of My Soul that has has become a Latter-day Saint favorite. Most recently, he has conducted and arranged the music for Cinematic Pop, an Arizona-based group that sets iconic pop songs to a full orchestra and choir. This is All In, an LDS Living podcast where we ask the question, what does it really mean to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm your host, Morgan Jones, and I'm so excited to have with me today my friend, Rob Gardner. Rob, thank you so much for being here with us.
1: This is fun. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, first of all, I feel like we should establish, because this is probably going to become clear over the course (laughs) of this conversation, that Rob and I are good friends. We're basically like family.
1: Basically, so.
0: And uh, I, despite that, I also have, or... Not despite that. What word am I looking for here? Uh, in addition to that, though, I have so much respect for Rob. You're probably the first
1: time because a lot despite of times with that. family, you don't really have respect for those <laughs> people, right?
0: No, but I do. <laughs> I do. I have so much respect. And I think that Rob is, is an unbelievably talented human being. So, so grateful to have him in today. And so, most of what I want to talk about is in relation to Lamb of God. And I wanted to do this because. Easter is coming up. And honestly, Lamb of God has like become a tradition for me for Easter. I go see it here in Utah. I went to see it in Arizona last year. And I think that it's that for a lot of people. And so I want to dig deep into some of the things that you learned and felt as you worked on Lamb of God. But first of all, let's talk a little bit about how it all started. So you were a missionary mm-hmm. in France, and your mission president asked you to compose some music. Right. And then what happened after that?
1: Oh, boy. Yeah, that could be a really long story. but um, So yeah, he asked me to write. He came to me, and I think it was like April. And he said, he was French, so I always try not to do a French accent. He was like, <laughs> like, I was like, I want you to write something for our next Christmas conference next Christmas. And this was, this was April. And I thought he meant like a song. So I was like, wow, that's that's advance notice, right? And so then I said, yeah, of course. And, and he was like, no, I want you to write like an hour's worth of music about Jesus. And I want it to be his whole life, from his birth to his death, to his resurrection, and even his like appearance to the Nephites. And so I said, okay. and And like— because this isn't the point of the story, long story short, like spent the next few months writing. And that next Christmas, we ended up touring in around like 13 cities in, in southwestern France, which was really awesome. But kind of my biggest regret in that, in writing that project was that since I had, you know, 50 minutes to tell this entire story, I got like five, maybe eight minutes to spend on like the atonement and th- that the last week of Christ's life, which is where I re- where the meat is, right? And so I told myself when that was done that someday I wanted to write a project that was just that that was just focusing on the atonement and the and the passion Week, as most religions call it. Um, so it took me a few years but um and lots of different concepts kind of came in and out of my head because it was' it, cause it, it's been done a lot right I mean, like there's been films, there have been tons of music written about it and all that plays and pageants and and so really, the trick for me was was finding how like. The narrative of the story because I didn't want it to just be like some some amorphous um, work about the atonement. I wanted to tell a story. So that was kind of the challenge. And at one point, even, I was going to tell it from the viewpoint of pilot, which I think would have been really oh, interesting because wow. I was just trying to think of like a really unique way of telling the story. And I, you know, I've always wanted to, whether it's writing, especially in writing, but also in my study, really figure out people. I'm really fascinated by people. I'm a very social person. And so... When I'm reading the scriptures or a book or anything, I kind of want to know who that person is, even if they only show up for like two verses, maybe especially if they only show up for two verses, like why did they do the things they did? And Pilate's interesting because he's stuck between a rock and a hard place, like very literally almost because it's on one side, he has the Romans who want him to, to quell an uprising. And on the other, he's he sees that he thinks Christ is innocent and doesn't want to deliver him up, but he can't not without getting in trouble by his superiors. And so anyway... It didn't end up being about Pilate, but he does make an appearance. So So, yeah, so ultimately I just decided, I kind of thought, well, what if I told the story from the viewpoint of the people around Christ rather than taking Christ and having him be the main character, quote unquote, looking more at Peter and Martha and the 17 Marys and Thomas, uh, in large part, the people that we kind of say don't be like them, like Peter denied Christ, so don't be like Peter. And Martha was always busy in the kitchen instead of what she was supposed to do, you know, the one story we tell about her, so don't be like her. And Thomas was doubting Thomas, so don't be like him. And and I really wanted to figure out why they would have done the things they did and in doing so found out, like, absolutely, we should be like them and not. We should try to emulate them rather than to try to not be like them. So Yeah.
0: Okay, so I definitely want to come back to all of that. I'm going to back up a little okay, bit, great. though. Yes, I think that it's so cool— First of all, one of the biggest things when I say that we're friends, people are like, is Rob Gardner young?
1: <laughs> You're like, by what standard?
0: <laughs> no, I'm like, yeah, he is. And and they're like, I always thought he was like older. But I think that it's because you wrote this work that's like amazing and people hear it and or even Savior Redeemer of My Soul, they are like, oh, well, I've been hearing that for years. How is he only... Or, or they thought,
1: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: And so it's amazing to me that you have been able to do this at such a young age. Growing up with music, what originally like drew you to music? And when do you remember... Was your mission the first time that you were drawn to spiritual music? Or when did that start for you? No, it's
1: actually... Yeah, It's probably not the story everyone would expect or want to hear because I don't have a lot. There are nine kids in my family. Shocker from an LDS family. Um, And I'm... I mean,
0: nine is pretty large even by Latter-day Saint standards.
1: Um, I'm the sixth and like everyone in my family is musical, but I would say we're musical in in the sense that everybody that's LDS is musical, right? Like you grow up singing, you grow up kind of playing the piano, or a lot of people took piano lessons. So I... I, there's a rule in my family growing up that we had to take an instrument starting in like fourth grade or fifth grade, and we couldn't quit until 10th grade. So we had to just do that. And so my instrument, really because my older two brothers who are, you know, my oldest brothers, so there's two boys, three girls, and then me. And my two older brothers had played trumpet. So I was like, I'll play the trumpet because I didn't care. Like I didn't really want to play anything. So I picked up the trumpet, learned how to read music because of that. And I was terrible at it. And like anybody who's not good at something, I didn't enjoy it because I wasn't good at it. Um, Never took it home from school, never did anything. Um, But started kind of, my sisters were taking piano. I started teaching myself piano and I absolutely did not want someone teaching me piano because I wanted to play what I wanted to play. But by the time I was in like ninth-ish I think ninth grade, I kind of remember being able to play pretty much anything that was put in front of me, especially like any hymn, like not Rachmaninoff, but any hymn or like church song, I could sight read pretty well.
0: This is the part of the story where I start to hate you. Oh,
1: just kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) But you know, also my mom did play piano, so I could ask her questions, but I mostly was teaching myself just because that's what I wanted to do. So then in eighth grade, I was still in the band and hating it. And with some friends, decided to be in the musical, the school musical, which was The Wizard of Oz. No, this was seventh, uh, eighth grade. Let's just say eighth grade. Okay. It was The Wizard of Oz. And I had a part in it, like a small part. And at the end of that, the choir teacher came up to me, another one of my friends, and was like, you guys should join the choir. You sing really well. And I'd never even thought about that because it just didn't cross my mind. But then a light, a light went on in my head, and I thought... I wonder if I'd join the choir if my mom would let me quit the band. Cause is this just a music rule or is it like an instrument rule? How, so, how hard and <clears throat>
0: fast is this rule, mom? Right. Exactly. Like, <laughs> what
1: are the, what are the logistics here? Like, um, so I remember her picking me up and I was like, here, I'm going to, I'm going to make, I'm going to make the pitch. And to my surprise, she was like really excited about the idea, which should have rung a bell like that as a kid, like if your mom is excited <laughs> about something, you should probably not do. But I'm, I'm glad she was. So she let me quit the band and join the choir, which really like that tiny little decision, which really was in most part just to get me out of the band, changed like the course of my life. The friends that I met and all that, like, I don't think I honestly would be sitting here today if, if I wouldn't have made that decision because I would have just quit the trumpet after the next year and never looked back, right? Well, that same year too, my mom My sister was taking piano and my mom came to me one day and was like, like, I tell it that she was in tears. She probably wasn't in tears. It just makes it more interesting that she was like, my sister, Tammy, she was like, Tammy, you can't go to her lesson today, but it's already paid for. So I'm just hoping that you'll go and take her place just this once. And like, if there's two things that'll get me, it's the talk of wasting money and mom (laughs) being upset. So like it was a double, I don't know, a trifecta has three. I don't know what a double effect is, but that's what it was. And so I agreed to just go to this one lesson. Come to find out, it was like a whole ruse between her and the teacher to like get me to take piano lessons. So I started taking from her. But that year also, like this is going to be a true confession. Kids out there, don't do it this way. Um, That year in seminary, one of the other kids in my class wrote a song, wrote a church song, and they performed it in class. And this is is my entry into music writing. My first thought when he wrote it, even though I'd never (laughs) written a song before, was I bet I could write something better than that. It was a great song. I still remember it to this day. It was a great song, but I pridefully was like, I could do something better than that. And so I went home and like tried to write a song, which was not anywhere near as good as his was, but it was the first time I wrote a song. Yeah. And my parents were like really supportive. They went out and like made sheet music of it and photocopies. Nobody wanted the song, but they were just going to make it real, like by putting it on paper, you know? So they were very supportive. So from that point on, I kind of like, and I think I entered it into like the whatever contest, the church music contest. It was probably the new era or something at that point. And I lost, of course. But that gave me kind of a thing every year to like write a song every year for the thing. So for the next three or four years, I think I just wrote like one song a year that was church related. So actually, I, I started out writing church music because that was just, it wasn't like that was the music I was listening to necessarily, but it was like an outlet, I guess. Yeah. Um, And I never won anything for any of my songs. We
0: need to see if the new era can dig those up.
1: I mean, I know what they are. And actually, some people out there will probably have heard them. So, But, but you know, contests aren't everything. Right. Um, no. So, so yeah. So that's what kind of started that. And then my that, my next piano teacher was the one who encouraged me to start writing seriously. She she said, why don't you write a symphonic piece? And this was, you know, from a guy who thought he could write a other song. Of course, so I was like, of course I can write a symphonic piece. And my senior year in high school, like the orchestra, which was the best in the state, said they would play it in my school. So we recorded it, which was just really cool. Like... I haven't gotten over that bug since having like 70 people play your music, you know, all together. So, um that just kind of built those things and and so that confidence just kind of came from not necessarily from success because I wasn't really seeing success, but people were encouraging me and and it was fun yeah. and no one was making me do it. And so um yeah, I think that's kind of where it, the bug came in. So
0: Yeah. Well, and I think it's interesting so you were after your mission, you were in a graduate program yeah. at USC, and that's kind of when this this feeling that you needed to do something with this desire to write more about the last week of the Savior's life kind of kicked back in. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that and what led you to—you ended up leaving that program, right, yeah. to write yeah. this?
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess to, to back up just a little bit, um, to put that into context, like I— I don't know why this is, but I've always felt, or I always, when I was growing up, felt like I started to be defined by music and I don't like to be put into a box. No one does, right? No one does. Um, But I started like playing every Sunday. I would be in like six wards because I would play in this ward and sing in that ward. And I just got kind of like, I felt like I was more than just my music, you know? And so I told my mom when I was going on a mission that it was going to be so great because nobody out there would know that I was musical. So I could just not be Rob the music guy for two years. And she was like, of course, she was like, no, you have to share your gifts. And I was like, "It's gonna no, mom, going to be so great. So the funny thing is I get out to my mission and my mission president, like my, my zone leader or, or district leader comes up to me just for Christmas. I got out there Thanksgiving Day. So it's not even like a few weeks in my mission. And he's like, hey, President Cueno wants you to sing at the Christmas conference. And I was like, I didn't say I'm like, how does he know I can sing? And I'm like, okay. And he goes, and he, he specifically mentioned the song he wants you to do. I'm like, okay. He's like, he wants you to do a song called Peace Siding With You. That was one of the songs I'd written in like 10th grade <laughs> that I'd submitted to the new era. And I'm like, there's got to be another piece I'd leave with you out there. Like, but and he's, and he's then he goes, he said you would know what, you're, what he's talking about. And I was like, what is going on here? So before I went on my mission, I had made a tape of all the songs I'd written for my mom because I'm a nice son. She had sent it immediately to my mission president and said, "Look at all the things I sent." So she ruined my plan. From the that's get-go.
0: the payback that you get for exactly no good deed goes unpunished. Exactly
1: for for making a beautiful album for my mother. So anyway, so but even coming home from my mission after then being turned into the music guy, my mission too, I was like, I don't want to just do music. So I actually got my undergrad in business at BYU. But while I was there, I started a nonprofit called Spire Music, and that we started doing shows at the Tabernacle, Pro Tabernacle, before it burnt down, mm-hmm. and people would come and like they were so popular that like people would be out on the lawns outside meanwhile everybody in like the music world was telling me nobody wants to like this music is no one wants to hear orchestral music and i was we were proving them otherwise right so so that but but while i was there i started to do that but once i finished school i kind of was like i would like to study this like i i'm self taught and that's a that's a good thing in some ways but there's so much that i could learn and i had been teaching myself a lot but um, but no, the weird thing about music is there's like zero schools out there that will let you do graduate studies in music without having done your undergrad in it. And I just was not willing to do four more years. And I also was really interested in film music, but the program at USC, which is like, they let 20 people in every year. It's very small and, and exclusive, but they don't care what your undergrad is in. It's a graduate program of music, but it's film music. So they want people who write accessible you know, melodic stuff. So they don't care whether your degree's in business or music or whatever. They just want a portfolio. So that was like the one program I could get into. (laughs) And I did. I got really lucky and got into it. So while I'm there, like I'm loving it because being a business school graduate, I wasn't ever surrounded by musical people. Like my friends are musical, but like music people in general, I wasn't surrounded by them. So suddenly I'm in this room with 20 amazing composers from around the world. And like my game went like, skyrocketed because you're friendly competing with these guys because you're on a weekly basis recording stuff with the best musicians in the world and hearing each other's stuff and I was conducting all their stuff and just like you're just immersed in this yeah and it was so amazing and suddenly I started getting all these ideas for Lamb of God but you know we just started the program it's November and I'm thinking I think I need to write this thing now but I've got another six months in this program it's like immersive we're writing all this there's no time to write a side project that's 80 minutes long, full orchestra and choir. <clears throat> but I felt strongly enough to contact my favorite orchestra in the world, which is the London Symphony Orchestra, um, because they have recorded like every soundtrack that I ever noticed, all the John Williams stuff and Harry Potter's and whatever. So people are always like, how did you get to work with them? And the answer is I just emailed them. Like Which is like one of the best parts of this story.
0: <laughs> it's like Rob's like, hi. Hi, my, my name's Rob, Rob Gardner. <laughs>
1: you, you won't have heard of me. Um, I also don't have the piece written, but nope. How when do it's started? done. Yeah. I mean, but that's kind of, that's always a lesson for me with people. It's like, you know, we always want to think that you have to wait till someone comes to you. And the truth is, like, even now where I'm at my career still nobody ever comes to me and asks me to do things. Like, I have to just do them. Um, you would think, like, you'd be getting calls. No, no one cares until you make this stuff. So, yeah, I just emailed them and I said, hey, I wanted this project. Do you have any availability and what would it cost? And they wrote right back and were like, here's our availability. They had some dates in June. So this is November. I haven't started writing it. And um, I'm like, done. And I booked it. I'm just like, we're going to do it. Because I have to do that. I will never finish something if I don't book it. Right. So even now with shows, I'll just book a venue And then I have to be ready for it. So otherwise i just languish. So yeah, so now I had the London Symphony Orchestra and I had an idea, I had a concept, but I was still in the program. And so I went and talked to the guy in charge and just told him, like, I have the opportunity to work with London Symphony Orchestra and I can't really do both at the same time. So what are my options? He's like, well, if you drop out now, you can't come back because it's only your program and we can't let people in halfway through. And so I was like, okay, that's that's not fun cuz i really love this and i love the guys i'm with and i don't want to walk away from it and i was living in la obviously at the time and and um they were like the only guys i knew in la and um so after like it was one of the most stressful decisions i've ever made but i finally just felt good about dropping out of the program to write this this thing and so starting january i just it was funny last year when i did a a thing where i talked about and my god so i was going back through my emails to see the timeline I didn't really get going until March. Like I have all these emails back and forth of people like saying, here's the idea, but I'm such a procrastinator that I was just letting it now letting it stew is good too for me. It's like you... and then it finally comes out, but like I was under the gun like crazy on this. In fact, I I would look going with my emails. I wasn't I didn't have the parts even printed until a week before our session. And so it was pretty crazy. But So
0: how long how long would you say like ballpark, how long well, it, it is? Took. It's
1: actually kind of hard to say because I was thinking about this for years before, right? right. It was on my head, and there are some songs and some melodies in there that I came up with in the years preceding that I thought, you know, that I put away or that that I wrote for something. Well, I didn't write for something else, but that I wrote and thought this could be part of that, and then didn't use them for anything else. So, but like once I put pen to paper to the time we recorded it, in fact. I hadn't even finished writing the choir parts when we recorded the orchestra stuff because <laughs> it was just I didn't have time. I knew what I wanted, but I hadn't written them yet. Um, but I would say, you know, since it was probably like February to June, so four, three, three, four months.
0: It's amazing. So, so but here's the thing that I loved when, when you talked about it last year in Arizona because I was there. One thing that I loved was you said, you know, a lot of people think that in order to write something that matters. Like you have to have this awakening in the middle of the night yeah. and you have to be able to write it in a short period of time, like Handel did, the Messiah. Right. But you said it wasn't like that for no. you. So what was kind of the process like?
1: Well, that's, I'm glad you brought that up because I hate even saying when someone says, like, how long did it take you to write? And you say three months and it's like, oh, like, because if I said 30 years, would they would that make it less of a, of a good work? No. Like, and that perpetuates a myth for a lot of young writers who are like, well, if this song isn't written quickly, then it's not any good. And that's not true. Like Beethoven's Night, I'm not going to tell you how long because I don't know exactly, but it didn't take <laughs> him a week. Like, and that piece is brilliant. It took years, right. usually. Um, and many of the greatest works take a long time. So, but everyone works differently. But I've I've never been one who wakes up in the middle of the night with that, like, like people I know and they ask, like, you must have been so close to heaven writing this. I'm like, actually, like ah you know it's I've always since since even on my mission I remember my mission president kept saying like how he thought like the thing I wrote there was inspired and I had a really hard time with that because I knew how I wrote it and it didn't feel inspired because I still had this weird idea of like oh angels should be singing it to me in my sleep right or like the words appear in the clouds or something stupid like that that wouldn't be stupid that would be amazing but you know what I mean Um, so for me it's it's really just sitting down and like working through it sometimes things come quickly But I remember very specifically, the song here is Hope in there, which is, if I had to have a favorite, it would be up there. Um, But it's kind of the centerpiece of it. And I remember, like, really agonizing over how to—I knew what I wanted it to be. I knew how I wanted it to feel, but I didn't have any words. Is that the one that Mary sings? Mary sings it basically, in my mind, to the cross. Like, after Christ has just died, before he's resurrected. So I wanted the whole piece to be about hope. And so I I thought— I want the darkest moment of the whole thing, which would be the time between he died and he was resurrected. Everybody thought all hope was lost. I wanted that beat to be the moment where we were the most blatantly saying, there's hope. So I knew I wanted that word in there, but I just remember thinking like working around it for so long because it was like, it was the, it was going to be the big hurdle piece. And so I remember just like getting a few ideas for it, but then like some of the words started to come slowly but, like, just could not come up with a melody. And I remember I was on USC's campus because I didn't have a a piano in my mother-in-law house that I lived there, barely didn't even have room for a mattress. So I would go to the practice rooms at USC to, like, work through ideas. And I remember that I had to go to a friend's cello recital. And so on the way, I stopped by a practice room to play through some stuff and to figure out. And I'd sat there for, I don't know, at least a couple hours and just didn't come up with anything I liked. And as I was leaving, like, this melody, like, did, and, you know, I'm not... I'm not implying anything by this, but I just, there was a melody that was in my head suddenly. But I didn't have time to go back to the room and I'm not a good enough musician to really like, well, I didn't have anything to transcribe even if I was. So what I did, this was, I didn't have any um, voice recorder on my phone. So I just thought in my head what the notes might be. And I texted myself like the notes, like F, C, A, like (laughs) that that rudimentary, just so I'd have something to remember when I got back home. Um, And luckily it worked and it stuck with me. Um, But so that's an example of one that, That feels like, oh, it came so quickly. It came quickly once I'd worked at it for days and weeks and months. You know what I mean? Right. So, you know, my problem with like someone saying someone was inspired just came from a place of like, first of all, I don't want to ever imply that to anyone that like, you know, heaven whispered these things to me or whatever. But then it also feels prideful to say that they didn't, you know, right? That it's like, no, I did this all on my own. So I really struggle with that as a missionary, especially and then I finally read, and I'm sure I'd read it a thousand times before, but in Moroni, he says, paraphrasing, that anything that inspires us to believe in Jesus Christ is, in, is inspired of God. And I was like, okay, by that definition, I can accept when something that I've written is inspired because I, I've seen that in people's lives and I've seen it in my own life. So I was, so then I was okay with, it, with acknowledging it was inspired, but I still, to this day, really shy away from, from insinuating that to anyone because I don't want them thinking that I'm saying You know, the angels appeared to me and did it. Because if that did happen, I would be screaming it at the top of my lungs because it'd be so cool.
0: Right. (laughs) Well, and it's like if that were the case, if that's how all these amazing things happen, why would we have any reason to work or to develop our talents? And it wouldn't
1: be nearly – well, it would be really cool, but it wouldn't be very satisfying. No. So, like, it's really satisfying to work hard for something. Right. Especially when then in that moment after you worked hard for it, it comes and it feels so right – like you don't question it. Like, whereas if you come up with something really quickly, you might go, well, maybe it's, I've already heard that before. Or, you know, maybe I'm stealing from someone. I'm not realizing it. Or, or I don't know. But, yeah, it's satisfying when you've really worked for something. But I'll tell you what, like, when you're not getting it, it's terrifying because it's just like, maybe I've lost it. Like, maybe I don't, maybe I can't write good melodies anymore. Or maybe this one's, you know, especially when you already have the LSO booked for June. You know, it's like, <laughs> uh, something will come, I hope. So, Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, and I think, too, it's like that's a lot of times probably seeing the end of the story and not everything leading up to it, like handles Messiah, you know? Right. It's not like that came out of nowhere. No. He knew how to do all
1: of those And even things. that story for me, I'm always like, I'm a little skeptical. <laughs> and like probably the same as mine. Like he, he had all these ideas in his mind for a while, and then he locked himself in a room for a week or whatever it was right. the story is to finish it. Right. But once again, it's like— for every one of those, you have one that took someone 17 years to write. And exactly. And it does not—one is not better than the other because it came quicker. And one's not less inspired than the other either. Right. So, yeah.
0: I love that. So, as you began to write Lamb of God, and, and I love that kind of an underlying message of Lamb of God, I feel like, is that it's okay to have weaknesses or moments of weakness— and it's okay to not know everything mm-hmm. and that we're not alone in that. Like if yeah. you feel that way right now, so it was with Peter and Thomas and all of these people right. who had moments of weakness and we kind of see that play out. But when, when did you first start to feel like those characters were kind of coming coming alive for you?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Like, I think to to play off what you just said, the other thing is that when we read these people, we already know the end of the story. So we're judging them by some ridiculous standard. You know, we're thinking like, well, he told them so many times he was going to get resurrected. Yeah, but he he said it pretty cryptically a lot of times. And then other times it was very clear, but this had never happened before. So, or like, you know, Peter walking on the water. I love, I'm going to paraphrase again, but this, this probably answers your question because I remember before, while I was doing just the research for it, I came across a talk by President Kimball that was written when he was still an apostle. I think it was in the 70s or sometime. And um, he it, he had said that basically that it was Easter time and he had read an article written by a pastor of some other church about Peter and basically saying, you know, what I said earlier, don't be like Peter because Peter denied the Christ and all these things. And President Kimball said that when he read it, that his blood boiled as a brother in the apostleship with Peter because he felt like his brother here was being maligned and went on, and gives, you have to go out and read this talk. It's amazing. It's not a talk. It was an article, I think. But he just talks about, and I'm paraphrasing praising again, but he basically said, don't judge Peter until you've gone out and taken a few steps on the water yourself. Like, we look at that story in particular, and we're like, oh, because Christ says, oh, ye little faith, wherefore did thou doubt. But before he before he doubted, he walked on water. Like, that's an amazing feat of faith that he had there. And Peter's faith, you know, we want to look at it and say, like, how did Peter going from this bundling no faith idiot to being the man who healed people with his very shadow and raised people from the dead Like after Christ is gone? He must have had some amazing infusion of whatever. And it's kind of like we're talking about with writing stuff. First of all, it prog- he progressed over years. But second, he was, never the, he was never the bumbling, faithless idiot that we talk about him as. He was always very close to this person being able to heal. No one else has walked on water that I'm aware of other than him and Jesus. And he did it while he was still fumbling through he had enormous faith and so it was in looking at those things and then finding what seemed to be inconsistencies in their character it was almost like being a, a pi or a you know a district attorney which would be fun in another life um <laughs> to go like look at this man who pulled out his sword and was ready to like go at an army of armed with swords and states, it says it's like, a huge group of people. It wasn't, it says a great multitude, which in no one's vernacular means three people. Like there was an (laughs) army against him and he pulled out his sword and started whacking and chopping off ears. And then a few hours later, he denies Christ because he's scared. I'm not buying that. Like there's something going on here. And so I would, I just wanted to figure out for myself who these people really were and why they did the things they did. But I also wanted to walk the tightrope or the fine line of not deciding for other people. So I try to create in my mind who these characters were. And then I had to in sometimes give them words to say it, but I tried not to say too much that wasn't there already in the scriptures because I wanted other people to have the joy of the discovery that I did. And rather than say to them, this is how it went down because I don't know if that's how it went down. That's how I think. And I hope in the next life when I hopefully get to meet Peter, that he'll be like, Hey, you did me a solid, but he might also be like, you totally got me wrong. But I think either way, he's going to be like, thanks for trying. And same thing with Thomas. Like, From an LDS standpoint, we have these, you know, 15 apostles that live with us each day. And you wouldn't fathom calling one of them by the nickname Doubting Dieter. Like, can you imagine? And yet we go Doubting Thomas because uh, we judge him by his lowest moment. You know, this was an apostle of Jesus Christ we're talking about. And so having—giving them the benefit of the doubt like we should with every human being. But these are real people and real stories who didn't have the end from the beginning shown to them. They were living each day. Um, Elder Worthlin, I believe it was, gave a talk called Sunday Will Come.
0: Yeah. I love that talk.
1: Amazing. And the truth is all those guys were in Friday when they were in Friday. They didn't know about Sunday yet. We do. And so we judge them by the fact that we know that he was risen on the Sunday. But on Friday, that's all they had was all the knowledge they had. So I wanted to try to capture that. Like, what was it like to be there on Friday, not knowing that Sunday would come? And, um, to do that musically and emotionally, but without, without putting too many words in their mouth that didn't seem like they would come out of their mouths.
0: Right, without taking, like, too many too artistic many liber- liberties. Exactly, yeah. yeah.
1: Or doing things that were blatantly like, well, that didn't, clearly didn't happen, you know. And yeah. that was tough to, like, okay. The, one of my biggest questions was, why wasn't Peter at the cross? Like, and I really wrestled with that for a while because we know John was there. We know the women were there. But that's really all we've got. You, and so I, it, it seemed like if Peter would have been there, they would have mentioned Peter. Um, one of the very few things that are mentioned in all four Gospels is that Peter denied Christ, which seems unfair, that they all four were like, we're going to put this in our book. But they did for whatever reason. And so I tried to figure out, for me, why wouldn't he have been there? And that's where the song I Cannot Watch Them came out of was just like I had to I had to explain for me why he wouldn't be there. And And again, I tried to keep it as as specific and vague as possible at the same time so that I wasn't telling everybody, well, this is what was going on, but at least to present a thought of like what might have been going on for Peter at that time.
0: Yeah. While we're on the topic of Peter, I love that song. That's one of my favorites. And I, I love at the end where he says that the last words on his lips or whatever it says you can quote it mm-hmm. but he says will be I know this man and i think that sometimes like we have this tendency to or we have moments where we're like is this what's happening and then later we have a lot more resolve yeah. and i think we that's actually beneficial And so I love that that Peter walks away from this experience with this resolve to be like, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life, and that's what Peter did. Like that's not that's not an artistic liberty. Like we read the rest of the (laughs) we read the rest of the the New Testament, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I love that. And then I also love with Thomas. You have the song some sometime we'll understand. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about the process? Because that song, it kind of shifts it from, I feel like it takes us from the New Testament and what happened there to today mm-hmm. and kind of connects the two yeah. over hundreds of years. <laughs> <laughs> um, what What was your thought process with that one?
1: So that was the second hardest moment because I, I knew I wanted to end with this, this thought for coming from Thomas. And I didn't – I had written – so sometime I'll understand the lyrics are not written by me. It's a hymn that was in like three hymn books ago. And oh, wow. my mom, I believe, was one who pointed it out to me and just said, you got to – but the problem was as many of the hymns written 100 years ago is just the music felt like 1910, you know. So it it didn't feel accessible today. Yeah. So I had found that um, – I had an aunt who died of breast cancer in I think it was 2004, I want to say. So it was a few years before that I wrote this or several years before I wrote this. And, um, I remember finishing that song when, when that happened, because I was struggling with trying to understand why that would happen to like such a beautiful young person with nine kids of her own. And, and, um, so that song was already there and I'd already written it, but I didn't have anywhere to put it. And so I never recorded it. I never released it because I like to put songs in a work and not just do individual songs. And so when I was writing Lamb of God, I knew that that lyric was exactly what I wanted to say. But I didn't feel like stylistically that song fit into the world of Lamb of God. So I kind of kept wrestling with this. But every time I would come back to it, it was exactly what I wanted to say. Because I really try to be careful when I write sacred music to never preach to my audience. Because I don't like to be preached to. I don't like to be told, like, this is what you should do. And so... I didn't want Thomas to have any answers yet because it, in, the, in the context of the story, it just happened. So for Thomas to have like gone through this thing of, of you know, questioning and we could go into what was really going on for him, but he, I'll just say this much. He was not, he didn't question that Christ had been resurrected. That'd be stupid. Every one of his friends and closest trusted people told him they'd seen him before. So he he believed it. He was hurt. And that's how he reacted was to say, I won't believe until I see. And we all do that every single day. Like- I feel like it's at-
0: kind of like- It's like the most uh, hurtful form of FOMO is like what he was experiencing. Yes. You know? Like
1: Christ knew he wasn't going to be there. So why would he come in the few minutes? I I have this theory that he even was there already and Peter sent him to go run an errand. And so like he was actually doing exactly what he he was. not I don't think he was late. I don't think I think he was doing he was where he should have been. And for some reason, Christ decided to come while he was gone. And like you said, but like it's like. How badly would that hurt? It felt personal, I think. And also, and how many times have we done that where it's like something happened and we look to heaven and we say, that's not fair. Why would you have left me out of this? Or why would you have not, you know, why did you cure this person of cancer but you didn't cure my mom, right? Or whatever it is. And that's where Peter, I mean, that's where Thomas was for me. He didn't really doubt that Christ was risen. I think that would be strange. Um, so sometimes I will understand it doesn't have any answers. It It simply says... Shakes, you know, it shrugs your shoulders and says, sometime we will understand, but I love that the chorus is just saying, but trust in God through all thy days if you're not, you know, to sing in praise while we're still in trouble. Like, while we're doubting, we can still sing in praise and just hope that someday we'll, it'll be revealed to us, right? And that's such a—and I remember, so I was just fighting against putting this song in there because I didn't feel like it worked, like, in the world. And I remember one day in my tiny little house in L.A., the deadlines were looming, and I just was really having a rough time with that and just life in general. And I started playing that song and it moved me so profoundly. And I thought there's no way I can't put this in there because if it moves me this profoundly in a moment when I need it, it's going to touch other people. And so who cares if it works? Like I can fix the orchestrate. I can make it, I can make it fit. And I have zero regrets about doing that because it, it's still to me, like you said, it just is a, it's a nice way to finish it up without, because I think sometimes we can feel belittled in our trials when someone says it's, it's it's all going to be okay like i remember one of my aunts the sister of my aunt that died saying to me about another song that, that treats it similarly similarly saying thank you for not diminishing the struggle of the trial while also saying but it's going to be okay like and that was a really high praise for me because i think it can be difficult sometimes to like make it feel like we should just shrug off our difficulties rather than like to feel like we can sit in them for a while but still sing and praise while we're hurting Because we can be in joy and sorrow simultaneously. And that's, I don't think people want to always believe that.
0: Yeah. I read a book recently. It's called um, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. (laughs) It's by Kate Bowler, who's a professor at Duke Divinity School. And the whole premise of the book is that at first I thought this book is extremely cynical. But she has cancer, Kate Bowler does, and... The whole premise is, you know, people tr- say a lot of things to try to make you feel better about yes. your situation. And she's like, really, the most important thing that we can do is just be there. You know, you don't have to say anything.
1: See, I love that you said that because I thought I was thinking about this just a few weeks ago. I thought, why did Christ bring Peter, James, and John with him to the garden? Because it says he he left all of his apostles out there and then he brought those three with him closer to the garden to sit with him. I'm like they can't help with the atonement. He knows that. Like, what is the point of bringing them there to watch? Like he says, watch and pray, but like to guard the place. No, he doesn't, no one's going to take him until it's ready. Right. So like, he doesn't need them to stand guard. So I thought, why? And I thought, oh, that exactly what you just said. Like when I'm having my hardest times, like, what do I want to know? I want to know that my best friend is there, even if they can do nothing for me, maybe, especially if they can't do anything for me, but just, Knowing that they're there outside, in his case, outside the garden or outside the door or on the other side of the phone is usually what's all we need. Like, sometimes there's there's more needs than that. But but that, to me, made Christ, like, so human and godly at the same time. That, like, he's God about to, to meet out the atonement, but he just wants to know that his friends are outside the gate. Like, that's so beautiful. I love that. It's so relatable. And we often don't feel like Christ can be relatable, and he was— one more, one other thing I learned through this is like how relatable he actually can be as a human being, like his relationships with all these people were so human and also divine at the same time. And it's, it's, it's amazing. So, yeah. um, but on that same note too, um, that you said about the, the lie, like, I, I love that you brought that up because we often that the lyric of sometime we'll understand doesn't say that there's a reason for everything. It says sometimes we'll understand and our understanding may be like, oh, it just didn't matter. Like yeah. it, lo- it felt so important in the moment and in the scheme of things, it just wasn't that big of a deal. But um, recently my cousin who helped me basically, her name is Courtney Marilyn. She's brilliant and she's a therapist and she was my go-to when I was writing this because I needed to understand people. And so I'd be like, okay, why do you think Thomas did this? And she was always had brilliant answers. And she asked me about a year ago, she called and she said, why do you think Christ asked Mary Magdalene, w- woman, why we this that? I said, I'm glad you asked that because it always kind of bothered me. Because I always thought, and I actually even wrote a song about this, the one my, from my mission, that he was basically saying, "Don't cry, because I'm alive," which is fine. But that's kind of the what what you know you said earlier, kind of like the whole, "Well, don't cry because it's going to be okay," right? And and she and her husband have this joke where we kind of, as LDS people, say like to someone. But but plan of salvation, like it's not even a complete sentence, but it's just like, but plan of salvation. So don't cry. <laughs> and it kind of diminishes our suffering and says that we aren't allowed to suffer. And she was like, I don't think that's what he was saying. I'm like, and I'm like rubbing my hands together like, what is he saying? And she said, you know, there's a, there's a concept in, in counseling and stuff. And the whole purpose of counseling is to be able to name your grief. once you put a name to your grief, it loses its power to a certain extent. And then usually also you find out your true grief is not what you think you're grieving about. So for example, I might say like, I'm really sad because, because someone scraped my car today, but really that's the surface thing. But I'm really more sad because something else happened. Like I'm dealing with something else. And that scrape of the car is just the last thing. And here we have Mary Magdalene who dealt with Friday losing a man that she loved and revered and was taught by and walked with every day in a horrible, violent death in front with all these people screaming at her, like the worst day of her life, right? And then that happens to be on the eve of the Sabbath. And she so she didn't even get to, because of the timing of things, get to do what they normally did, which was spend the time to prepare the body and to, to wrap it and to do all these beautiful last, kind of like we do now with viewings, like to have this time to dress the body and all the last loving services you can pay someone you love. That had to be done quickly because they had to stop for the Sabbath. And so I imagine her that whole next Sabbath day, she's just waiting for the sun to set again because all she wants to do is go back and finish this loving service for this man that she loves, for her for her God. She gets back there and the body's gone. And that's the last straw. Like, she's freaking out. She's having, like, a psychotic break, if you can accept that. Like, she's having the, uh, the new worst day of her life, right? Right. And she's trying to find out from everyone. So much so that even when the angels appear to her and ask her, she doesn't seem to even acknowledge their presence, which I think find fascinating. That They're like, "Woman, more of sudden she doesn't say, she doesn't wonder at the angels. She just answers them and says, they've taken my Lord away. The more they laid him, I know not. And then Christ appears and he, she thinks he's the gardener and she's freaking out. And he says, "Woman, more of thou? And what is her answer? Her answer is not because they killed this man that I love. It's Someone's taken his body away, and I and if you've taken if you know where he is, let me know. And then she says, I'll take him away, which can you imagine? Like, I doubt she was a very large woman. And she's saying single-handedly she's going to take the body of Christ with her. Like she's just not even thinking through things. She's she's desperate and she's she's grieving. And when he asks her, Woman, why was thou? I love the idea that he's giving her the chance to say out loud, like, because I lost this person that I love so much. And But she's still freaking out, and so he has to kind of cut that short and just say Mary to comfort her. But I thought that was such a beautiful concept where it's not— he wasn't saying don't cry. In fact, he was saying the opposite. He was giving her the chance to grieve and to lose that because the truth is Mary Magdalene, like us, we want to look at it and say like, oh, well, the resurrection happened, so everything was made okay. But we know the resurrection is going to happen, and we still grieve the loss of our loved ones, and that's good and right. And she, even though Christ was resurrected— he was no longer going to walk with her every day. He was going to go back to his father. And so she lost him just like we lost everybody, even though she now knew she hadn't lost him for good. She still was grieving the loss of her friend, her teacher, her master, in her own words. And so he was allowing her that opportunity to grieve and teaching us in the process. Like, I, I had to think, isn't that what prayer is about? Like, allowing us to speak and to name our griefs rather than just doing the, like, trite repetitions and stuff and saying like, like I think it's another lie I think we live by is um, when people are like, I'm so grateful for my trials. No, you're not. You're grateful for what the trials taught you, but none of us like are grateful for them. And maybe I can't speak for everyone, but usually what we're saying is we're grateful for what we learned. But I think even there, there's a danger of saying like, well, then we should rejoice in our trials and we should rejoice while in our trials, but we can still grieve those losses and we should still. It's, It's healthy and proper. And Christ taught us through those things, woman we thou, you have a right to grieve. Not the opposite saying, don't cry, I'm alive. But saying, here's your chance to grieve here, with me here.
0: Yeah. I love talking about Lamb of God. I think that I could listen to you talk about it all day. But we're running kind of short on time. One more thing, though, that I wanted to ask you about. You did this arrangement of Savior, Redeemer of my soul that people— love. People, I feel like that song, people like gravitate toward it. Yeah. Um, what originally drew you to, that song is in the hymn book, right? right? But it's a completely different arrangement. Right. What originally drew you to that song? And what do you think we learn from that in, in light of the Easter season about Christ?
1: So what I love about that text and the reason why I was drawn to it is that it talks about, like, she says, I say she, I don't know why, because I always think of it as a woman singing, but, um, and fill with sweet my bitter cup. And it's, it's that juxtaposition of the sweet and the bitter. Like, our whole life is these juxtapositions. But that whole song, like, there's a melancholy to the lyric, there's a melancholy to the melody, but it's praising at the same time. And that duality of, like, we can go through tough things and still rejoice and still praise and i think if we don't allow ourselves to grieve properly in those things then that will ultimately often turn to bitterness rather than being allowed to taste that bitter and that sweet at the same time and making allowing that bitter cup to become sweet but i think the lyric to that is so beautiful and so profound and yet so simple and so that's for me where the melody had to go was just make it as simple as possible it feels like you've heard that song your entire life even though you might have just heard it and a lot of times we try to complicate everything and there's so much beauty and simplicity, especially when it comes to art. Like I always over orchestrate things and then I have to go, okay, what can I take away? Like, or a melody is so much more profound if it's simple because then you can treat it with more complexity around it and allow the melody to stand in the middle of it. Or if it's a lyric, like we always try to just be so profound in everything we do. And there's just so much meat and beautiful, exploration in something that's simple. So, but I I love that that lyric just is a praise lyric while still acknowledging that things are hard because they are.
0: Yeah, and that's life. Right. That's what we came here for. I think that that is such a beautiful, I love the way that you put that because I think that that's one thing that we see in the lives of these people that we've been talking about. We see this ability to allow themselves to grieve, to allow themselves to err. And sometimes I think we don't allow ourselves that same opportunity. We like we're like, oh, well, like even even when we're not being critical of those people in the right. Bible or in the scriptures, for me, I look at people a lot of the time and I'm like, oh well, like we see where later, they bounce back, but we don't allow ourselves that same opportunity. Yeah. So um, in conclusion, Rob, I think that all of this that we've been talking about is a great example of what we try to talk about at the end of this podcast always. But I'm interested to hear your exact answer to this question, which is what does it mean to you to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ?
1: That's a tough one. You know, what? I'm going to answer this in maybe a bizarre way, but I would say for me to understand what it's to be all in, we have to acknowledge that sometimes we're not. And I think that's what these people have taught me is that, you know, we want to say or, or at least that, like I said with Peter, that sometimes we're going to think that we're not, that whatever Peter's motivations were for or reasons were for denying or whatever Thomas's feelings were or Martha's or Mary's. In those moments, they felt like they, they had, they felt like they demonstrated that they weren't all in, but they were, their hearts were there. And I think in order to really understand being all in, we kind of have to understand that we're all nuanced and complicated and that to be all in for me simply says that we're all going to stumble. We're all going to have doubts and probably severe doubts if we ever think too hard about anything. And the line just comes back to me from, from sometime I'll understand that we just, though dark thy way, still sing in praise. Because things are going to get dark. They're going to be hard. They're also going to be bright and beautiful. This world is not supposed to just be dark. It's supposed to be beautiful and bright as well. But we will have those times. And in those times, we have to just sometimes surrender and, and, sit and just continue to sing in praise.
0: I love that. Thank you so much. Rob, thank you for sharing your thoughts and your music with us. It has been such a pleasure.
1: Thank you for having me. It was awesome.
0: You can find Rob's album, Lamb of God, on iTunes and Spotify, as well as in Deseret bookstores. For more episodes of All In, check us out on iTunes, Spotify, Bookshelf Plus, or by visiting ldsliving.com podcasts. And as always, please don't forget to leave us a rating or review. Thanks so much for listening.